Ah, yes. You're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. from the milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. We have to read the whole scripture, not just stick in one part our favorite scriptures and we're going to understand doctrine. It's here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand the doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend about this study, tell your pastor about this study. Let's get into God's Word, line upon line. We are now up to Acts chapter 17. Last week we were in Acts chapter 16, where we saw the Gospel leave the Middle East and begin to be preached in Europe. And we're going to see the Apostle Paul and, and Silas continue to, to spread the word in Europe. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we can get into the study for today. Our Heavenly Father, we pause before our study because we want to acknowledge you. We want to praise you. We want to acknowledge our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and praise him. We want to ask, Father, that you be with us in our study, that you be with us in our walk with you, and that each week we might uh, deepen our understanding of your word and of your will, and each week deepen our conviction to live by the word of God. We praise you, Lord God Almighty, and ask that you'll bless our study now. We ask this in the holy, the mighty, the majestic name of our Lord Jesus the Christ. Amen. So as I mentioned last week, we were in chapter 16 of Acts, where we saw the gospel leave the Middle East through a vision that Paul had when he was a uh, facing obstacles. He couldn't preach the, the gospel in Asia, what was the, the province of Asia, Asia Minor, back in the Roman times. Today we call it Turkey. He was uh, having obstacles preaching the gospel there. And the door opened. He had a vision of someone in Macedonia saying, come and help us. And then he was able to go with Silas into Macedonia and begin preaching the gospel there. And we saw him encounter Lydia, uh, a woman of faith there, her and her household were the first ones to convert and be baptized. 
and then we see them being thrown in jail. And uh, we just ended there with the release from prison. And I'll just go back to verse 35 uh, of Acts 16, just to get the flow into chapter 17. And verse 35, it says, And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeants, saying, Let those men go. So they tell the sergeants, okay, you can let those guys go now. And the keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. So you're, you're off the hook. Go ahead. But Paul said unto them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans. And that's the key phrase here, that Paul, they didn't realize these were not just any Jews. These were actually Roman citizens. So they have beat us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison. And now, do they thrust us out privately? <laughs> no way. Nay, verily. But let them come themselves and fetch us out. In other words, we're not leaving until they come and let us out publicly and reverse what they have done. And the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, and they feared. They feared because they didn't realize, well it says here, when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and begged them. They came and urged them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. Like this, this is a fatal mistake. This was a two-tier system where it's not like our system today where, you know, a lady justice is blind and whoever comes before her, lady justice doesn't know who it is. She just hears the case and she renders her judgment. That is the way the Western civilization works today based upon the biblical principles. So these uh, countries of the West, and particularly the, that have been influenced by Britain and America, are based upon a Judeo-Christian ethic, and that all men are created equal. And so Lady Justice is blind, doesn't matter who you are, let's hear the case, this is the judgment. But in these uh, pagan societies, they have a two-tier system. And if you come before the law, and you are not a Roman citizen, don't expect justice. In fact, it doesn't even make sense for you to come before the law because the law will just be against you. And Romans, if you're a Roman citizen, you get preferential treatment. And, and we're seeing, unfortunately, this two-tier system coming back now in the form of uh, socialism and communism and also in the form of Islam. These, these two ideologies are now prevailing and, and growing. And if they are successful or where they are successful, you'll see this two-tier system of justice and, and no longer based upon the, the Judeo-Christian biblical ethic of all men are created equal. So they said, you can leave. And they came and they begged them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And when they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. And now we come into chapter 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So they're just the area we call Turkey. They've left Turkey, and now they've come into the, what we would call Greece today. And they're just they're going along the shoreline of Greece, going deeper and deeper into Europe, and on their, basically on their way to Athens. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, 
they came to Thessalonica, there, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So when they were in uh, Philippa, they did not see a synagogue. So they went to where prayers were made by the river. But in this city, there was a synagogue of the Jews. And it says in verse 2, notice this. And Paul, listen very, very carefully. This is one of those things that you would just read over. Let's remember that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. His mission is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now he's coming into Europe doing exactly that, preaching to the gospel, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But always he will go to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. And listen to this. And Paul, as his manner was, this was his manner. He went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So he kept the Sabbath. He kept the Sabbath. All of the early church kept the Sabbath day. We, we, didn't, we do not see that after Christ's death, that the early church suddenly started observing Sunday. This did not come until much later. This came hundreds of years later with the ecumenical councils. And Christianity today, both Roman Catholicism and Protestant, Protestantism, are based upon these ecumenical councils. Uh, Roman Catholicism, obviously, they have the first seven ecumenical councils, and uh, then they had other councils after that. But the Protestants also accept these first ecumenical councils, the Council of Nicaea in 325. So this council, this ecumenical council that we saw in Acts 15, that was comprised entirely of Jews. By the time we come to 325 AD, a couple of hundred years later, the ecumenical councils, there's not a Jew in sight. They are comprised entirely of Jews. And in this chapter, chapter 17, uh, sorry, entirely of Greeks, in this chapter, chapter 17, we are going to see the beginning, the, the infiltration of the Greek philosophers into the church. And from this early infiltration in chapter 17, we leave a completely Jewish Christian body, and we, we're going to see the church emerge into something completely unrecognizable to the early church. And it's a, it, it happens through these councils. The first council of Nicaea in 325, the first council of Constantinople in 381, the council of Ephesus in 431, the council of Chalcedon in 451, the second council of Constantinople in 553, the third council of Constantinople in 680, and the second council of Nicaea in 787. In, just as in Acts 15, in these ecumenical councils, when all the leaders come together, critical decisions were made about the faith. And this is where we see the faith of the Bible completely get distorted into a form of Christianity that, as I said earlier, is completely unrecognizable to the early church. And in this first council of Nicaea, they were dealing with one major issue, and that was the, uh, the uh, what we would say, the identity of, of God. What, what, you know, is God uh, triune or not? And there was a big controversy that, that they had to uh, resolve. And so that was the major focus of the, the uh, council in Nicaea, the, the, the Godhead. And what, how, how is it comprised? And that's where they confirmed 
that the Godhead from that point forward would be the Trinity. And then they, 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 would, they would refine the doctrine in, in further uh, ecumenical councils. But that's where it was established because of this controversy with a, 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 deacon, a bishop called Arius. But I won't get into that today. But the other part of the Council of Nicaea, what came out of that was something called the Quarto Deciman uh, Controversy. Because the other part of it, they hated the Jews, these Greeks, these Greek philosophers that took over the church. They hated the Jews so much that they had to stamp all traces of any Hebraic root of Christianity out of the church. And one of the other decisions that they made out of this council at Nicaea, Nicaea was one of the city that they held the council in, was to change the Passover that no longer would they keep the Passover as the early church always kept it. And as we read in, in Corinthians, and it's very clear as we read through Acts, it's obvious that the early church kept the Passover. They switched it to Easter, or Ishtar, which was a pagan custom. And they came up with the Council of Nicaea exactly how the celebration of Ishtar would be reckoned. And they ensured that no matter what, because the Passover is based on the lunar cycle, so the Passover can be can be any day of the week, but Easter will always be on Sunday, and so sometimes Passover is on Sunday as well. And through their calculations, they ensured that Passover and Easter never, ever, ever coincide, because they wanted to completely extricate the church from anything Hebraic. And so that gave rise to something called the Quarto Deciman Controversy where the churches in Asia and the Middle East that were taught directly by Christ and by the early apostles, they would not go along with this decision. So they, they were called quartodecimans, and they held on, and, and quartodeciman meaning 14th. They were 14thers, because the Passover is reckoned to be the 14th day of Nisan, and you'll see that in Leviticus 23. And the church always kept the Passover on the 14th day of Nisan. So they were called Corsodecimans. Whereas the churches in Europe, the, the western part of the Roman Empire, that were not taught directly by the original apostles, they, were, they, they didn't really care. They didn't really care. And so when this, uh, at this time, uh, Christianity was now orthodox. Christianity was now, you were no longer persecuted for being a Christian. It became the state religion. And so a lot of people were converting to Christianity at this time in the West. And it was more for career advancement, that if you were, it was now the, uh, the state religion, and if you were a Christian, you could actually advance politically. And so a lot of people, it, it, it behooved them to become a Christian. There was no persecution associated with it. And so when they were told by the state that uh, this is now the date that we'll celebrate, they didn't mind, they just switched. But those out of the Middle East, they would not switch. And so that's, this is what created this quartodeciman uh, controversy. And, and so it's important that we understand how, how we got into this situation, and we're going to see it here as we, as we work through Acts 17. So Paul's manner, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, but his manner was to keep the Sabbath. And so for three Sabbaths in a row, he's reasoning with them out of the Scriptures. And this is also something very important, that Christianity is based upon the scriptures. We don't come along as Christians to say, if we were uh, speaking to, to Jews, 
we wouldn't say to them, throw the Old Testament away. You don't need that anymore. Uh, Christ has come. We have a new Bible. You don't need the Old Testament anymore. This is no way. God's word is true. And so everything that's in the Old Testament is true because it's God's word. And so when Christ comes along, he taught them out of the Old Testament. When the early church was established, they didn't have a New Testament. There's no such thing as the New Testament. The, the New Testament was being developed by these apostles. What they had was the Old Testament. And so when they, are, when they refer to the Bible, when they refer to the scriptures, they were referring to the Old Testament. And, and, and you know, when we have today this fast-growing, quote-unquote, religion around the world that basically says to us, we don't need the Bible, throw the Bible away, we have a new revelation, this cannot be. God's word is true. And everything in God's word is true, and there's nothing that God speaks that falls to the ground. Every word that God speaks must be fulfilled. And so here, Paul comes to these, these Jews, and he takes the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and he reasons with them out of the scriptures. This is and Any church that rejects the Old Testament is a false church, because they're rejecting the word of God. And, and you'll see this, this manner that Paul had to keep the, 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 the Sabbath. It's the same custom that Jesus had in Luke 4 and verse 16. We read, and, and we read this when we studied Luke. He came to Nazareth, that is Christ, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And listen, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This was his custom. This was his manner. This was his practice. So we are Christians because we follow Christ. The things that Christ did, we do. That's what makes us Christians. We are followers of Christ. It's not that Christ did something and we do something else. Then we wouldn't be Christians. We'd be following to something else. So Paul was a Christian. And Christ's manner was to keep the Sabbath weekly. And then Paul's manner was to do exactly the same thing. And the early church did exactly the same thing. Back to Acts 17, verse 3. So he was reasoning with these Jews out of the scriptures. And what was he arguing with them about? And, and, and arguing, I'd say debating would be, would be a good word to, uh, to say here. It, it, the, the, the word, uh, when it says, for three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. The Greek word is dialogamai. Dialogamai. And it, it, it means to dispute, to, to, to speak with, with you know, reason and force and, and really get your point across. But you're also listening to the other side. The other side is doing the same thing. So it's a debate, it's a dispute, but it's an, it's, an, it's an intellectual engagement where you're being rigorous with the ideas, and the ideas are colliding, and people are listening and seeing what, what remains. So this whole thing that we're seeing now, and I'm not sure how much of it is happening in the Caribbean, but it certainly is happening in North America and in, in, in Europe, where free speech is being curtailed. That, that, that's the last thing Christians want. We want everybody to speak freely. And so we can reason with them out of the scriptures. Why? Because God's word is true. And God's word is a two-edged sword. And God's word is powerful. And God's word can destroy darkness. And so let everybody speak freely. But the dark side doesn't want that. They want blasphemy laws. They want to curtail free speech. They, they want hate speech laws. So that people cannot hear both sides clearly. They only hear one side of the story. And that this is how Satan operates to deceive, and part of deception is to hide, to hide truth. Christian, let's say everybody speak freely, and let's reason out of the scriptures. 
and God's word can destroy all falsehood. So he, he was disputing with them out of the scriptures. So it's not just out of his head, it's not just his opinion. It's let's turn to the scriptures. Same thing that Christ did, where, where he would dispute with the Jews and say, well, how is it that David wrote? And he would turn to the Psalms and he would read that and, and, and leave that with them to ponder and think about. It's in the scriptures. So this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul is doing. Now, what is he disputing? Verse 3. Opening and alleging. So he is opening, revealing, he's opening up the scriptures. The same thing that Christ did. That the scriptures that they had memorized and knew intimately, but they didn't understand what they meant. He would turn to these scriptures and help them understand the meaning. And, and then alleging, making sure that they understood. Uh, he's commanding, he's setting it forward in a very authoritative way. So, so open up the scriptures and telling them this is what it means. And what was he opening and alleging with the scriptures, with the Old Testament scriptures? That Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This is the Messiah. Jesus, the, the man that was here with us. This is the Messiah. So he's going through the Messianic prophecies. He's going through the Old Testament. And he's showing them, listen to the, the, the words that are used here, that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. This is what they didn't understand. They were looking for the Messiah. Here they are under Roman occupation. The, 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 the nation of Israel, the, the, the tribe of Judah, certainly, under Roman occupation. And they can't understand it. Because this, this was not their fate. They are not supposed to be subject to pagans. Pagans are supposed to be subject to them. Not only that, they've been uh, through the Babylonian uh, oppression and persecution. And prior to that, the northern tribes were subject to the Assyrian oppression and persecution and slaughter. And then they've been enslaved and humiliated. And so they were looking for the hope of Israel. They were searching the scriptures and looking for the Messiah. And they know the Messiah is coming as a mighty king to reign. And so as they're looking for this king, when Jesus came, they that's not who they were looking for. And certainly when he came just as a man and he was a servant and then he was crucified, he was humiliated and crucified, that's certainly not the, the fact that he died. Because there were many people who claimed to be the Messiah. And eventually Rome would just deal with them and put them to death. And then that would, that would end their messianic claim. And so Jesus was not the only one who came saying that people said he's the Messiah. And he wasn't the only one that was put to death claiming to be the Messiah. But Paul now is reasoning with them and saying this situation is different. This really was the Messiah. And he's showing them out of the scriptures why it was necessary for Christ to come and suffer. That this is actually in the scriptures. They, they, yes, Christ is coming as a great king. That will be his second coming. What Paul needed them to understand is that it was necessary for him to come first as a man. And that has everything to do with Deuteronomy. And again, you know, New Testament Christians, if we reject the Old Testament, we have no idea what's going on here. Why is, why is Paul explaining with authority that Christ had to come as a man and that he had to suffer and that he had to die and that he had to be resurrected. And this really has to do with the second exodus. That the, when the Messiah comes, there will be a second exodus. 
and, and, and uh, we will no longer speak of the first exodus. That we will, we will speak of uh, this, this exodus that's coming that will be so great that we will no longer talk about the exodus that came before. That, that's what, uh, in fact, in Jeremiah 16 and verse 14, and again, the word of God cannot be broken. When God speaks, it must happen. God never lies, and he never shirks on a promise. So, so they are looking at uh, prophecies like this in Jeremiah 16 and verse 14, where he says, well, let me just back up a little bit. And he says here in verse 11, he says, Then you shall say unto them, say to the prophets, Because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, and have walked after other gods, and have served them, and have worshipped them, and have forsaken me, and have not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, you walk every one after the imagination of his evil heart, that they may not hearken unto me. Therefore, and this therefore isn't just arbitrary. God isn't just angry and making up punishments. This is the agreement that they entered into. That if they were to obey God, how they would be blessed. And if they disobey God, how they would be cursed. And this is the agreement that they entered into. So God is simply exercising the terms and conditions of the covenant. So because they have disobeyed him, and because they have broken the covenant, therefore the covenant must break them. And so verse 13 of Jeremiah 16, he says, Therefore will I cast you out of this land into a land that you don't know. Neither you nor your fathers. So here they are in the promised land, the land that was promised to Abraham. They're in it, but they're behaving in an ungodly manner, and they're breaking the covenant. And so this is the, if you, if we, and we will take a look in Deuteronomy, if we look at the covenant in Deuteronomy, this is exactly what it says. That I'm bringing you into, or Moses says to them, you're going into this land, but be careful to do all the things that the Lord has said. Because if you break the covenant, you will be ejected out of the land. The land is holy, you must be holy. If you are unholy, you'll be ejected out of the land, and you will be subjugated to, to your enemies. So because you are where you walk everyone after the imagination of your evil heart, and you do not listen to God, therefore, it's logical, therefore will I cast you out of this land into a land that you know not, neither you nor your fathers. And there shall you serve other gods, day and night, where I will not show you favor. Now, verse 14 is very strange. And it's almost a non sequitur. It just, it, it's so strange it doesn't make any sense. So from 11 to, to 13, this makes sense. Because your fathers forsook me, you're worse than your fathers, you're, you're happy to worship other gods, therefore you're going to be cast out of the land and you're going to serve other gods. And you're going to be enslaved. This, this is logical. This, this fits with the, the covenant agreement. And then he says, the prophet goes on to say in verse 14, Therefore, behold... The days come, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said. So, so here, as a result of what happens in 11 to 13, they're going to be scattered all over the world. They're going to be taken captive. They're going to be enslaved. They're going to be slaughtered. This is all according to the agreement. And then in verse 14, suddenly it says, Therefore, therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord lives. 
that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives that brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he has driven them. And I will bring them again into their land that I gave unto their fathers. This makes no sense unless we understand what's going on here. And we cannot understand what's going on here unless we go back to the law, unless we go back to the Torah, unless we go back to Deuteronomy, what, what Moses spoke to them before they went into the promised land. All of the prophets are simply repeating the, the original prophecy of Moses. So if we come now into Deuteronomy and chapters 28, 29, and 30, we won't read all of it, but I would, I would recommend highly that you read all of chapters 28, 29, and 30 in order to understand what is going on in Jeremiah, what's going on in Isaiah, what's going on in Zechariah, what's going on in Malachi. All the prophets will, will make sense once we understand Deuteronomy. And what is happening here with the Apostle Paul and these Jews, where he is showing them how it is necessary that Christ had to suffer, he had to die, and he had to rise from the dead. That this, this, was, this, this, in fact, the fact that he died is not proof that he's not the Messiah. The fact that he died and came back to life, this is the proof. This, this is what enables the second Exodus. So, so this, this uh, logic of Jeremiah will only make sense if you understand the role of the Messiah, that you have broken the law, therefore you must be humiliated and subjugated and enslaved and slaughtered, and you cannot stay in the land. Makes sense. The, there, and therefore, the days come that God will no longer be referred to, and, and the whole Holy Day system that God is constantly referred to as the one who brought them, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We won't say that anymore. Instead, we're going to say, the Lord, who brought the children of Israel from the land of the north, that's, that's uh, north of uh, Jerusalem, which is uh, Syria, um, uh, Iraq, uh, Turkey, that, that land today. So they're going to be taken as slaves there. Uh, they're going to be freed from that land and from all the lands where they've been driven. This really doesn't make any sense unless we go back to Deuteronomy and if, if we go to uh, Deuteronomy 28, and I, I won't go too much in this, but uh, I would like you to, if you can, read 28, 29, and 30. But in 28, 15 it says, But it shall come to pass, if you will not hearken unto the voice of the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then he starts to lay out all the curses. And, and in verse 43, just an example, the stranger that is within you shall get up above you very high, and you shall come down very low. Verse 47, because you serve not the Lord your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things, therefore shall you serve your enemies, which the Lord shall, shall send against you, and you'll serve them in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. The, verse 49, the Lord shall bring a nation against you from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue you shall not understand. Verse 50, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, 
nor show, show favor to the young. And then the curses go on and, and on and they mount. And they culminate now in Deuteronomy 30. And I'll just read the first few verses of Deuteronomy 30. And it's not until we grasp this that we can understand what Paul is doing in Acts 17. In Deuteronomy 30, remember Moses is not going into the promised land. He's sending the children of Israel into the promised land, but he's warning them as they go in. And here in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 30, he says, And it shall come to pass, it shall come to pass, this will happen. When all these things are come upon you, he's just read out 28 and 29, all the blessings for obedience and all the curses for disobedience to the covenant. And then he concludes it by saying this, And it shall come to pass, when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So Moses is looking at these people. They're on their way into the promised land. And he's saying, yep, you'll inherit the promised land, all right. And you will be blessed because of your obedience to the covenant. But you're also going to be disobedient to the covenant. And you're going to be cursed. So both the blessing and the curses that I just outlined to you, they're going to come upon you. So he says, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you. And you shall call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So God is going to scatter them to all the nations. And they're going to be brought to the sense of, of well, yesterday, brought to their senses. And they're going to come to true repentance through this process. That when this happens, you shall return unto the Lord your God. And you shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day. You and your children, listen to what Moses says, with all your heart and with all your soul. So Moses is, is seeing that he's seeing their, their blessing, and then he's going to see they're going to be disobedient. They're going to inherit the curses of the covenant. They're going to be scattered to all the different nations. And he's, but at the same time, he's saying, you're going to repent. And, and you're going to return to God. And you're going to obey his voice, but not in a hypocritical way. You're going to obey him in a, as a result of this process you're going through. You're going to re- obey him in a wholehearted way, according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. This is not possible. It's not possible for a human being to obey God with all their heart and all their soul, absent of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is required for this to happen. He goes on. That then the Lord your God will end your captivity and have compassion upon you and will return and gather you from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is what Jeremiah is referring to in Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah is simply repeating what Moses is saying. That therefore, so you're going to be driven out, but then he says, therefore, we will no longer refer to the God who saved you from Israel but the God who gathered you from all the four corners of the earth. This is exactly the prophecy in Deuteronomy 30. Verse 4, If any of yours be driven out to the utmost parts of heaven, from there will the Lord your God gather you, and from there will he fetch you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and he will do you good and multiply you above your fathers. And then listen to verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul that you may live. This is what's going on. And so a lot of people do understand that we are now under the new covenant. But what is the new covenant? And who is it with? Jeremiah 31, verse 31, he says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with who? Does God make him to drop the Jews? And now he makes a new covenant with the Gentiles? With the Greeks? He says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant, which means a renewed covenant. It's the same covenant renewed. It's a renewed covenant. That I will make a renewed covenant with who? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It's not with Gentiles. Gentiles have to be grafted in to the commonwealth of Israel. And we see that in Ephesians. Ephesians 2. That this is a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, said the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, said the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. Exactly what Moses, because so Moses was foreseeing this, that there's going to be a new covenant and write it in their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So, this is what uh, Jeremiah is seeing, the same thing that Moses saw. And this, no doubt, is what the Apostle Paul is showing them in the Scriptures. But the Apostle Paul says, it was necessary that the Messiah die. Now, why is that? Why would it be necessary that the Messiah die? Because of God's covenant. That God made this agreement with them. He can't just break it. If, if he just suddenly forgives them, that's why the, the logic kind of doesn't make sense in Jeremiah 16. That, you know, because you're, you're disobedient, therefore you'll be scattered and, and subjugated. And then he says, and therefore you'll be gathered back and put back in the land. What? This doesn't really make any sense. Except for the fact that he promised Abraham that in Genesis 12, in your seed, Abraham, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is a promise from God, and, and there were no conditions for Abraham. That this is the, something God, God just said, I promise I'm going to do this, and Abraham believed him. And so God has covenanted with Abraham that in his seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The way that he carried out this promise to Abraham is to set up the Mosaic covenant, that it is through the Mosaic covenant that Israel would be established, as the peculiar treasure, we see this in Exodus 19, verse 6, that they would be established as the peculiar treasure above all the peoples of the earth. And we see repeatedly in the prophets, uh, particularly in Isaiah uh, and Micah, that the people of the world will come to Zion, to this peculiar treasure that God has, and they will learn the law from him, from, from them. So because of this promise to Abraham, God puts in place the Mosaic Covenant. They break the Mosaic Covenant, and the Mosaic Covenant therefore breaks them. But because of the overriding promise that God has to Abraham, he now puts in place a new covenant. He renews the covenant, but this time, instead of the law being written on stone, he writes the law in their hearts with the Holy Spirit. He gives them the Holy Spirit. He circumcises their hearts. So now, they're no longer stubborn. Or when this is fulfilled, and you have to understand the first fruits calling is being fulfilled partially now with the church 
and, and the door, because the, the Jews are blind, the door to the Gentiles has been opened, Gentiles are being grafted into this covenant, the Holy Spirit is being given to them to provoke the Jews to jealousy, but God ultimately will do what he says, not only with the tribe of Judah, but with all 12 tribes of Israel. He will do this. He's just doing it in a, in a smaller way in the first fruits harvest, and he's actually doing it with Gentiles now to provoke the house of Israel to jealousy. But ultimately, he's going to fulfill everything that he said. Now, Paul is reasoning with them and saying, look, it was necessary for the Messiah to die. Why? Because he is the Holy One of Israel. Because Israel has broken the covenant, God's hands are tied. God cannot just now, you see, when they were enslaved in Egypt, they were enslaved through no fault of their own. They did nothing wrong. They were just very prosperous and they were multiplying, and Pharaoh panicked. And because they were multiplying so much, he enslaved them to make sure that they don't take over the Egyptians. And then God rescued them. And that was the first exodus. He brought them out of Egypt. And Christ, the, the, the Passover, the blood, that spared the wrath of God. That when God saw the blood, the death angel passed over. And because of that sparing of life through the blood of the Passover lamb, God could then take them out of Egypt. This second exodus that Jeremiah prophesies, that is going to be so massive that we will no longer talk about the first exodus, Paul is explaining to them that it was necessary for the Messiah to die. And if we go to uh, Isaiah chapter 61, when Christ came, he, when he began his ministry, they handed him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he searched the scroll, and he read a particular passage. And then he told them, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But he didn't finish the passage. There was more to it. And what he was saying is, this is my mission. And so in Isaiah 61, verse 1, which he read, it says, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Now he has, he has come to rescue Israel. He came on a, a rescue operation. And when these prophecies of the covenant are unleashed on these people, they are, they are coming to they are coming to their sentence their senses and they're coming to repentance and so he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and then he stopped and he didn't finish the rest of the mission because the rest of the mission would be fulfilled but and all of it will be fulfilled fully with his second coming and so it goes on to say and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort all that mourn to appoint unto them that mourn but which ones? Them that mourn in Zion. And to give unto them beauty for ashes. That, that all of this destruction, this devastation, this, this turmoil, all of the bombing and fire that's going to take place, he's coming to replace that with beauty. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they, the people of the land, might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he might be glorified, because he says he will be glorified in Israel. 
and they shall build the old wastes. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the waste cities, the desolations of many generations. And so he goes on to explain what is going on and, and the, how the prophecies of Abraham or the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled in these people. But then no doubt Paul would have turned to Isaiah 53 to explain to them why the Messiah had to die. That in the first exodus, it was a, it was a rescue operation, but they were enslaved through no fault of their own. Now, the people are enslaved, and Jeremiah shows us that, entirely because of their own fault. Entirely because they broke the covenant. Entirely because they provoked God and disobeyed him. That's why they're enslaved. So for God to now just rescue them, it would be to, it, he would be breaking the covenant. And so Christ had to come as an Israelite to represent the nation of Israel. That's why he's repeatedly referred to in the, by the prophets as the Holy One of Israel, because he came as the representative of Israel, and he lived flawlessly. He looked at Deuteronomy, he studied Deuteronomy, and he lived by every word of God. And so whenever Satan came to try to destroy him, to tempt him, to lead him astray as he did the first Adam, Christ would quote the law. He would quote Deuteronomy, and he would say, man must live not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God. And so that's exactly what he set out to do, to live by every word of the law. And everything he did, and the Jews tried to tempt him, and Satan tried to tempt him repeatedly to deviate from the law, but he never would. He lived perfectly by the law. And in so doing, he fulfilled all of the terms and conditions of the covenant. Now, he, in fulfilling all the terms and conditions of the covenant, can now be blessed according to the covenant. All of those blessings, God is now bound legally to bestow all of these blessings upon Christ. Now Christ came as the representative of Israel. Instead of, of taking all of these blessings, instead he voluntarily took all of the curses of the covenant. And this is why he had to die such an excruciating death. A completely innocent man dying the most excruciating and humiliating death because he is taking all the curses of the covenant upon himself. And then he's able now, with his blood, to make the offer to Israel to say, if you will accept me as your Passover, if you will accept my blood of this new covenant, then you can have peace with God. That all of these curses that you've incurred, I have taken them. And instead, all, instead of these curses, you can now have the blessings of the covenant in me. In me, you have now right to the land. In me, you have right to all the blessings of the covenant. And so this is why, this is what Paul has shown them. It was necessary. You incurred this humiliation and slaughter and enslavement. And Christ has taken it away from you. So in Isaiah 53, we see the prophet writing, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the Lord, the arm of the Lord revealed? People cannot believe this, that the arm of the Lord came to earth. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men. This is what Paul is showing them. You guys despised him and you rejected him, and you have fulfilled the prophecy. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows 
and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And people will read this and think he's borne the griefs of the whole world. This, If you read Isaiah, the whole book, Isaiah never speaks of the Messiah coming for the whole world. It's entirely, he's speaking entirely of Israel, and more specifically of Judah, and even more specifically of Jerusalem. And he's saying, surely he has borne our griefs, that is Israel's griefs, the griefs of the covenant. He bore them, the curses of the covenant, and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That was our assessment of him. He's not the Messiah. Look, he's stricken, he's smitten of God, he's cursed, he's afflicted. That's how we saw him. We didn't understand he was taking the curses of the covenant upon himself. And so that's what the, the prophet explains here in verse 5. But this is not true. Our assessment is not true. What is true is he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. With his stripes, we are healed. And so Paul is explaining all of this to them. And then we see in verse 4, and some of them believed that Paul was so convincing and so clear and had such a command of the scriptures. Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. So the Gentile Greeks, remember Paul is just going to the synagogue and going on the Sabbath. And he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And the devout Greeks, they, they, they believed in God, and they would go to synagogue on the Sabbath. And so they got to hear this reasoning as well, for three Sabbaths. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which didn't believe, they were moved with envy when they saw the efficacy of Paul's preaching. And they saw the fruit that Paul was bearing. They became envious. They took unto them certain lewd fellows, of the baser sort. And this, unfortunately, you know, don't let's not be fooled by religious people. And anybody can put on a religious mask. It's the heart that matters. And these were corrupt Jewish people, leaders. So they took unto them lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, these that have turned the world upside down are come here also. And that is the power of this gospel. That it completely, and that's what God is going to do. He's going to take, take those that are meek and humble and at the bottom of the pyramid, and he's going to turn the whole thing upside down. And those that are mighty are going to come crashing down. And so to them that are, you know, they feel the world is, is, is turned upside down. It's actually turned right side up. When Jason, whom Jason had received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. So they're Jews. They don't really care about the, the Roman Empire emperor, but they're using this to try to get Paul and, and, and Silas and, and the believers into trouble. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So, and you'll just always see these arguments, this rhetoric, that the people don't really believe it. They're just using it to stir up the masses. And when they had taken security of Jason, taking hold of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. So they realized, this is serious, this is, this is getting real. And Paul and Silas are so effective in preaching the gospel, we have to protect them. So they send them to Berea, neighboring town. 
who coming there went into the synagogue of the Jews and again would be there on the Sabbath. Now, verse 11, these, that is the Jews in Berea, were more noble than those, that is the Jews in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind. So, so they came and Paul's opening the scriptures and they were, oh, this is, uh, this is interesting, this is intriguing. So they received the word, they didn't resist it with all readiness of mind, but this is what they did. And they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. So Paul would preach on the Sabbath, and then every single day through the week, they're searching to see, is this really true? What did, what did the other scriptures say? Because we can't have an understanding of the scripture that contradicts any other part of the scripture. We should be able to read all the scripture and not skip over anything, and, and reconcile our understanding with the entire word of God. Here a little, and there a line upon line, precept upon precept. Therefore, many of them believed. So many of the Berean Jews, they just accepted this. This is this, the scripture supports what he's saying. Also, of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. So this is now where we see the Greeks and honorable people among the Greek society believing this and coming into the church. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, so he's left Thessalonica, they, they didn't like him there, now he's somewhere else, and they don't like him preaching there either. They came there also and stirred up the people. And then immediately the brethren sent away Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timothy stayed there still. So Paul, Paul leaves and some of the other brethren leave with him, but Silas and Timothy stay there in Berea. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. So now he's deep into Greece, he's now in, in Athens, and receiving a commandment and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy for to come to him with all speed, they departed. So they take Paul to Athens. He tells them, tell Timothy and Silas to come as soon as possible. And so they leave to give that message to Silas and Timothy. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. He's coming out of the Middle East. He's come through Greece, uh, through Macedonia, and now through Greece. He's deep into Greece now. He's into Athens. And he sees the whole city is in this darkness of idolatry. And so his spirit is stirred within him. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. So he's in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout people, but then also in the market. He, daily he's disputing with them. Now listen to this. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. So the Epicureans and the Stoics are in, in these uh, ancient Greece was fascinating in the sense that most um, nations at this time were very, uh, we would just say, uh, very religious, very mystical, very spiritual. They all they had all these gods, and then suddenly these people in Greek in the ancient Greece became deep thinkers about reality and the nature of reality, and began to question the gods. And this is where we see, I mean, atheism was in India earlier, but we really see the rise of atheism in this ancient Greece among these philosophers, and particularly the Epicureans. They, this philosopher came to believe 
and there were many types of philosophers, but this, this branch of philosophy came to believe that there was no God, and that the purpose of life is to lead a balanced life, that it's really to pursue pleasure, but not in a hedonistic way. It's to pursue pleasure in a way that you don't bring consequences back on your life that it will cause you to suffer. So lead a balanced life in such a way that your whole life can be one of, of pleasure. That, that was the Epicurean philosophy. The Stoics actually did, did believe in God. And some of their teachings were closer to Christianity. They believed that no matter what happens to you in life, you just have to bear it, grin and bear it. And just, you, you're suffering because of your perspective. If you can shift your perspective, then the suffering will not be as bad as you think it is. So this was the Stoic uh, philosophy. And so he's in the market, and so Epicureans, who were atheists, and Stoics, who, who just believed in just uh, taking your lot and, and you know, take it on the chin and don't complain, uh, they encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? So there's all different types of philosophers in the market, and they all uh, dispute with each other. And so they wonder what this babbler will say. Other some, he seems to be a center forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the resurrection would be completely ridiculous to the Greek mind, because those that did believe in God and were influenced by Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they certainly believed in, in a spirit in man, and that when we die, that spirit would be released from the corrupt body, and the spirit was pure and, and to totally spirit and, and clean, and, and the whole purpose of life was to live in such a way to clean that spirit so that it could be released and go to heaven. And that's, that's where we get the philosophy in, in Christian, coming, Christianity, coming from these Greek philosophers as they infiltrate the church. Uh, but this concept of a resurrection on the earth, that you would have a body on the earth, and Jesus was resurrected and lived on the earth, this would be complete anathema to the Greek mind. That how can you have life after death on the earth? It, they, they just wouldn't accept this. So this was a bizarre teaching. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof you speak is? For you bring certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. So they had many, many philosophers in the market. They never heard anything like this. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So that was just the thing that was done. These, these were very fascinating people who were very intellectual and developed this Greek language to be very robust, that it could contain these, these great, uh, grand ideas about the nature of reality. And, and, and it's interesting that um, Alexander the Great took this Greek culture and spread it all over the world and spread the language all over the world. And then the Romans came and built infrastructure all over the, all, all over the known world so that they could gather all the taxes. And so you have this combination of Roman infrastructure and the Greek language, Koine language, which was very robust, and Paul coming along as a Roman citizen, a Hellenized Roman citizen, a Jew, that knew Greek extremely well and could travel all these roads and preach the gospel and use the, 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 the Septuagint to reason with the, the Jews, but also use it to, to attract the, the, the Greeks and, well, the, 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 the pagans, who would have spoken Greek fluently. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. 
For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. And therefore you ignorantly worshipped him. And let me just start. He says here, um, Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So he saw there was one God that was unknown to them. And he said, you know what, you're actually worshipping him, and I'm going to declare him to you. So God is, uh, Paul is using their own way of thinking and resources to, to appeal to them. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things, and has made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far, from every one of them, uh, every one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. And certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. Paul was a very educated man, a very educated Jew. He was a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he could dispute with the Hebrews out of the Scriptures and knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards. But he was also educated well in in Greek culture. And he knew the poets. And some of these, you know, like uh, Iliad, the, the Odyssey, uh, these are very big intellectual writings. And he was familiar with this. And so he's able to say, some of your own poets say this. And so he, he's able to reach them from where they're coming from. And we should be able to do the same. As certain also of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. So he, he, he reasons and disputes with the Jews out of the scriptures. But here he's not using the scriptures, because the Greeks don't know the scriptures. And so he's using their poetry, he's using common sense, and he's reasoning with them. But he's preaching the gospel. He says, Whereof he has given assurance unto all men, in that he has raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the re this is what I was telling you earlier, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That, that would just be offensive to Greek sensibilities. That would be absolutely ridiculous that when we die, we come back to life embodied and on the earth. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear you again of this matter. And these others are probably the Stoics, that they would be more likely to listen to this than the Epicureans, because the Epicureans didn't even believe uh, in, in God. They were more atheistic. So Paul departed from among them. Now listen to verse 34. This is how Acts 17 ends. And... It's a chilling ending. I mean, it's good news, but it's bad news. He says, Howbeit certain men, so he's in with all these philosophers, and some of them think what he's saying is ridiculous, others want to hear more. Now he leaves them. Howbeit certain men clave unto him. 
and believed. So now we see believers, people coming into the church with a Greek, deep Greek philosophical background, deep thinkers, real intellectuals, real robust intellectual thinkers, who this is what they do. They challenge each other and sharpen their wits, and they're able to reason very clearly. Certain men of these clave to him and believed, among the which was Dionysius, the Arapagite. Now, you know, if we were alive at this time, we would understand this is a big deal. This may be one of the leading philosophers, one of the most eloquent, powerful philosophers of the day. And so Luke is making a note that, listen, this was really effective, and Dionysius, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So now we see the Greek philosophers entering the church. And it's not long before there's this dispute between the Greeks and the Jews. And these Greeks despise the Jews, and they end up taking over the church. And so by the time we leave this ecumenical council in Acts 15, and a couple of hundred years later, when we come to the ecumenical council at Nicaea, and the following councils after that, we see an absolute despising of the Jews. We see Greek philosophy, Platonic philosophy, because Plato was the most influential philosopher. So all of these philosophers, regardless of what their philosophy was, they were taught by Plato. So Socrates was the main pivotal. They were philosophers before Socrates. But Socrates was sort of the breakthrough thinker. He taught Plato. Socrates didn't write anything down. Plato wrote things down. And Plato established an academy. Because of the fact that he wrote books and established an academy and taught the philosophers, he was far more influential than his teacher, Socrates. And then we see Aristotle after that. So Plato, though, is the most influential philosopher, and all the philosophers are influenced by Plato. And then we see this, these philosophers coming into the church and bringing these Platonic concepts with them. And if we compare traditional Christianity, what we think is Christianity today, with the Christianity of the early church, we're going to see this, this dichotomy. We're going to see this, this, this bifurcation between the Hebraic form of Christianity that we read here in the Bible and the Greek philosophical Christianity, which we see spilling into the Roman Catholic Church. And then even the Protestants, when they break away from the Roman Catholic Church, they accept the first ecumenical councils. And, and the, the despising of the Hebraic root, and even you look at people like Martin Luther and, their, and his writings, and how much he hated the Jews. And yet Christ was a Jew. And if we understand the whole Old and New Testaments together, that the promises that God has made to the Hebrews, particularly to Abraham, he is going to fulfill those promises. And that's what Paul was reasoning with them and, and showing the Jews how it was necessary for Christ to come, the Messiah to come and die and be in the grave three days and three nights, according to the scriptures, and then come back to life. And now, now he can return. And now he can rescue his people. And now he can gather them from the four corners of the earth. And now he can put them back in the land, if they accept him as their savior, because he has fulfilled the terms and conditions of the new covenant. So that is Acts chapter uh, 17. We'll take a, a brief break, and I'll be right back. Asia, Africa, America, Australia, God is calling. 
Make her. 